Welcome to Essential Ethics and this special podcast on the ethical minefield that is genomic sequencing in newborn screening. I am Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne Children's Bioethics Centre. Newborn screening started in the 1960s after Dr Robert Guthrie developed a method for detecting elevated phenyl ketones on dried blood spots from the blood of babies taken in the first few days of life. This was considered so essential to the health of infants with phenylketonuria that newborn screening was legally mandated in many parts of the United States and newborn screening was rapidly taken up around the world. Subsequently, other diseases were added to the dried blood spot programs and with the development of gene technology in the 1990s, some of these included a genetic test. However, across countries and across regions or states within those countries, newborn screening panels have evolved without true consensus of the most suitable diseases or gene tests to screen with. Into this complex milieu, next-generation sequencing has developed so that it is now possible to test for thousands of autosomal recessive or X-linked diseases or even the whole genome from a single newborn blood spot. The technological capacity is available, but does this mean that we should use it? This podcast was recorded during the Ethics of Paediatric Genomics Symposium held in 2022 at the Royal Children's Hospital as a joint initiative of the Biomedical Ethics Research Group of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Children's Bioethics Centre at Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. The panellists include Professor John Christodoulou, Professor Ainsley Newson, Professor Julian Savalescu and Dr Meg Wall. The panel discussion is led by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre, and asks the question, are we ready for genomic newborn screening? This is what we want you to imagine. We're in 2026, we're at a newly opened women's hospital in Melbourne's far outer north. So just for those of you who live in Kilmore, you've now been swallowed by Melbourne and you've got a new women's hospital in Wallen. And this hospital has been chosen as a site to pilot a new approach to newborn screening, which is called genomic newborn screening. Leading up to this, there's been a lot of discussion between state government, the hospital executive, the hospital's research ethics committee, clinical ethics committee, the newborn screening committee, to figure out exactly how to do this and whether this new hospital is willing to take it on. But in the end, it's been decided the pilot program will happen here. And what's going to happen is that all parents of newborns will be given the opportunity to choose to have either conventional newborn screening or genomic newborn screening. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, um, John, can you fill us in a little bit about what the difference is between conventional newborn screening and genomic newborn screening? Sure, thanks, Lynn. So conventional newborn screening really has been in place for maybe 50 years now and has been widely recognised as, you know, one of the most successful public health measures uh, over the last 50 years. And most newborn screening at present um, is based on various biochemical analyses. There are a few more recent exceptions to that. 
and the focus has been on disorders where early diagnosis would have great opportunity in terms of implementing treatments that would really change the trajectory of the disorder. And that's been one of the sort of key tenets of um, uh, Wilson and Junger's um, paper when they first described newborn screening and the principles behind that. And so that's um, a very effective and cheap um, great sensitivity and specificity, so very accurate, few false positives. But in more recent years, there's been discussion about the prospect of um, genomic sequencing being implemented uh, in the newborn period. Technically, it's doable. It's very easy, or easy, in inverted commas, to take DNA from dried blood spots and do whole genome sequencing. OK, so, John, just to, to interrupt you there to clarify, this, from the perspective of the baby and the parents, there's nothing different. There's a heel prick, a blood, blood is taken, goes on the card, all the same. Correct. But, of course, there are a whole raft of other issues that I think is going to be the subject of today's discussion um, that need to be considered before mm. you um, would go down the genomic sequencing path. Sure. I uh, wonder if it would help to have a, a bit more idea of what different things you might find out. Right. Between the biochemical screening that you sure. currently do of that blood and genomic sequencing. Yeah. So... Traditionally, biochemical screening will um, measure a chemical in blood uh, that is a pointer to a particular disorder. Um, that often, and by nature, these are screening tests, so by nature that means a second test often needs to be done uh -huh. to verify that initial screening result. Yep. Um, so where genomic sequencing differs is I, I wouldn't really consider that a screening test. It's a diagnostic test. Uh, and so they have different implications. Um, of course, we're, we not, haven't even spoken about the differences in cost yet between traditional newborn screening and the current newborn and genomic sequencing. But if we take that out of the equation, um, the genomic sequencing... Um, in fact, there have been studies looking at whether genomic sequencing could replace current newborn screening mm. as a first-tier test, and mm. I think the evidence is pretty strong against that. Um, genomic sequencing um, uh, f for the current range of tests doesn't have the, anywhere near the sensitivity and specificity oh, that's that, that the biochemical screening does. And it's about 100 times more expensive or more. OK, so that's actually a really important point. And I, Meg, I wonder if, if you, you or perhaps John could tell us a bit more about how come this old technology is actually better than a new technology? We're used to new being better. You'd like to have a go. Do you want to start, or, uh, or I, I can have a go? So, so the new technology um, was very much focused on specific biochemistry, um, and it's cheap and easy and robust and and doable very quickly. Uh, genomic sequencing is great, um, but it's uh, not cheap. It's uh, not as simple and can't be generated and analysed as quickly as the biochemical screening can. Um, and so um, I think one of the um, areas where genomic sequencing will potentially be very useful in the newborn arena, there, there are several scenarios, but the first one would be you can um, use the genomic sequencing as, a, if you like, a second-tier test for um, primary newborn screening. And um, without going into detail about the biochemistry, because that'll put everyone to sleep, um, as an example... There's a metabolic disorder um, that can be picked up on newborn screening very effectively. 
biochemically. Um, there are several clinical ways it can present. One is as in infancy with very severe cardiomyopathy and um, risk of arrhythmias. Um, but the second way it can present is in adolescence or adulthood in an individual who's undergoing intensive exercise and develops rhabdomyolysis. Um, the biochemical result will be the same on newborn screening, but right. you can't tell the difference. Okay. The, where the genomic sequencing would be helpful is there's, there are reasonable correlations between the changes in the gene and what kind of clinical outcome you would expect. So okay. you could use the genomic sequencing to guide whether this, this baby needs intensive management or whether this baby can be watched and, and advised as they get older in terms of avoiding the potential um, uh, triggers for the rhabdomyolysis. Okay, great. So what you said there is that it, it, that's an instance where the genomic sequencing allows you to be more precise than the, the biochemical right. screening. Meg, I wonder if you could fill us in a little bit more on from a lab perspective how these things work. And particularly, I guess, what are some of the concerns that people have raised about genomic sequencing for newborn screening? Well, I think from the from the lab perspective, I think um, the idea of the genomic screening is is far more complex um, than than the conventional um, newborn screening that we're doing at the moment. As John says, where we're looking at a small number of relatively small number of analytes with very well robust, well understood readouts with very, very clear consequences in terms of, you know, um, having a, being, a, being able to be fairly confident about what the um, likely spectrum of outcomes will be mm -hmm. for the babies and um, being able to um, give the parents um, you know, um, information about what the predicted outcomes will be with a fair degree of certainty. Um, of course, when you start looking at um, genomic sequencing, we, we're, we're looking at a whole lot more data. We know that there's a whole lot more harmless normal variation in terms of the readouts that we get. and. And we're further away from the protein itself, the effector protein itself. So we're we're, we're making a prediction about what what the effect of that genetic change will be on the protein and how that relates to the to the disease. And so sometimes a lot of the time these changes have never been seen before, um, and so. That means that it's hard for us to have um, a high degree of confidence about what the implications might be mm. for that baby and mm. for that family. Mm. So that sounds like two things. There's more work to be done than previously in the lab. What deciding what to report is that an issue? Yes. Yep. Yep. So um, I think deciding um, how the getting the test right, um, deciding. Uh, what genes to you know potentially everything is on the table so choosing what are the what are the right genes to do how to structure the so you test. Could look at absolutely everything mm. or you could set it up to just look at some things mm. John As do you want to said we could have the option of you know only looking at genes once there's a biochemical readout for example to see if we can sort of refine some of that right. information or you know well we can look more broadly yep and it sounds like there's quite a lot of choice there in in I guess wider and wider range of things that you yes. might look for. and I think as as you look more more widely then um, 
you have to think more carefully about the the benefit to harm ratio. Yep. Mm. Okay, Ainsley. Hello. What are you thinking about? <laughs> your eyebrows moving. So out. many things, um, and yeah, it's really interesting. I think a couple of the things that have come out of this discussion so far are we're talking here about. A technology. When we talk about genome sequencing, we're talking about a technology that, for the, for the most part, particularly in Australia to date, has been used in the clinical context. And it's being used increasingly and by non-genetic specialists, but it's being used when there's a driving clinical need for that test. Then what we start to think about and talk about when it comes to newborn screening is a proven, as John explained, a proven public health intervention. And once we start adding a new technology into that intervention, how can we ensure that that technology makes the program better and that we're using it to think about not just what it could possibly identify, but what are the attributes of the actual technology and why, why we're using it in that particular place in time. And what I would probably add to what John and, and Meg have said so far around particular scenarios for the use of this technology is um, can genomics ever be used to detect something that biochemical screening might not? Um, and so there are a couple of pilots that have run in Australia to date where they have used a genomic intervention as a first-line test but in a screening context. Mm. But, and they've used that very successfully. The, the pilot data shows that it works. It does what screening needs to do, which is to indicate to a family that they might need second-line intervention. And um, it is doing that with a high degree of efficacy at a relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. But we need to also think about the fact that in Australia there's over 300,000 babies born a year. And if we're going to deliver a technology this complex at that level, we need to think about how we might do that to use the technology well. Mm. But across all of this, I think there's a, a bigger message around what kind of ethics paradigm are we using here? And when we think about clinical care, we tend to use clinical ethics or, or um, values and concepts that come more from a clinical background, things like individual autonomy and individual values. When we think about public health and screening technologies, we then start to also think about um, population benefit, maximising population health, minimising yeah. harm at population yeah. level. And so that tension between individuals and populations, yeah. and that's when you know we start to make decisions at population level. And Julian so, might get twitchy. <laughs> so you've introduced two, I guess, um, paradigms, the, the, the individual clinical paradigm and the population health paradigm. Mm. And I noticed earlier that John said genomic newborn screening could shift, could be the shift from screening to diagnostic. Yeah. Ainsley, do you think that moves it from population health to individual clinical? I thought that was a really interesting comment of John's, actually, in the sense that what is so interesting about this technology is you're basically taking a test that is very similar to the way that it's used in clinical practice and applying it at population scale, but you're potentially doing that without a couple of things that you would normally have in clinical practice, which is things like a family history of a particular condition and sometimes, um, you know, various information about how to actually interpret those genomic findings in the context of that family. And newborn screening isn't the only area where this comes up. So a couple of us on the panel are involved in another project at the moment where we're doing this um, for a lot of people at once. And that's been a really interesting experience. Um, we're doing that in the context of reproductive genetic carrier screening. But 
different setup to this, so we won't mm. get distracted. But I think what is really striking about that, it is, it is taking, for all intents and purposes, what is a diagnostic test, but employing it in a screening context. Yeah. And that's where those tensions are really interesting. And I guess what comes up then is the decision about what variants to report and how to do that at population scale. Because yeah. then you need to make sure that your background information, like the databases that you're using to interpret these findings, are as good as they can possibly be for mm. the population that's in front of you. OK. So we might, that question about interpreting findings, I think we might... Park? <laughs> ..come back to. Uh, but it's one of the things, I guess, that makes doing it at a population level more complex. OK, yeah. so fortunately state governments decided to, f to fork out the money... They've invested in the infrastructure. Now, the agreement with the hospital has been to set up the pilot screening program so that parents get a choice. You can have the standard or you can have the genomic. And Ainsley and um, Julian in particular, I wonder if you could tell me whether you think it's a good idea to have set it up like that. Because you could have said, OK, everybody's going into the genomic. Why give... Is, is a good idea to give parents a choice. Julian, do you want to go first? Between conventional yeah, newborn screening yeah. and genomic, well, there might be cost reasons that you may save money uh, if people elect to just to have the conventional screening, which, as far as I understand it, will be much more limited than the genomic newborn screening for the numbers of conditions you might be able to, to identify. Um, some people might have personal objections to, you know, probing the genome of, of their child and, and want to opt for biochemical analyses. Um, I think there's at some point going to be a question. So at, at one point, newborn screening was, was more or less mandatory in practice. Parents now have a choice of whether they have newborn screening. And I think there's going to, you know, once we enter the, the realm of genomic newborn screening and identify more and more conditions, the question is going to be, well, can you really refuse this mm. around conditions that, you know, have, a, have an early intervention or some benefit to yep. earlier diagnosis? Yep. So, you know, I think that, you know, early on choice, you know, will be available to people. But I think as the technology matures and as the benefits increase, you know, refusing genomic newborn screening may be like refusing a blood transfusion for your child, that there is so much valuable information. The genome is a goldmine. Um, and, you know, John, John mentioned sequential interrogation of the genome later in life to look for causes of fitting, but also packed in that genome is a whole bunch of information about risk, not just diagnosis of, you know, disorders, but also the risk of a child developing diabetes or the risk of a child becoming obese or the risk, you know, risk both for, for childhood development and later on in life that can be used to tailor interventions and, and assist different um, programs. So. I think, you know, it, it's, this is irresistible um, and that, you know, initially there will be choice between conventional and genomic newborn screening in the sort of early days. Then there will only be genomic newborn screening and then it will probably be mandatory. Okay. Uh, and and in, early on, if, if genomic newborn screening isn't provided, private providers will step in, in my view, and, mm. and start to offer this to people mm. um, for, for their children for a broader range of tests than conventional newborn yeah. screening. So you reckon it's OK to have choice when it's in this pilot phase? Yes. But probably not later on or becoming increasingly less defensible? Well, it, 
In order to stay with conventional newborn screening as genomic newborn screening matures and diagnoses more conditions, would be to say there's a fundamental ethical difference between a biochemical test and mm. a genomic test. Mm. And I think that is a deep mistake. Genes, as we heard, just produce proteins. Um, and there's no reason to think that the protein is morally different to the gene that gave rise to it. And I think that defending that difference is going to be more and more difficult, you know, as the kind of power and delivery of genomic newborn screening increases. So I think early on, it will be fine while it's roughly in an experimental phase. You're only looking for a few conditions from genomic newborn screening. They're roughly comparable. But as you know, we've had, as John said, decades of conventional newborn screening. We've reached the limit of the sort of chemicals you can test for. And, but we haven't reached the limit of what you can do with genomic newborn screening, and that will exponentially increase. All righty. Thanks, Julian. Let's see what Ainsley thinks. Yeah. Um... It's quite provocative. Uh, I think I a think couple of surprising. Otherwise, you'd all be wringing your hands over the genomic Absolutely. So just to temper um, that a little bit, I think a couple of things. Australia is actually relatively unusual globally in that we do engage parents directly about agreeing to newborn screening. It is more or less mandatory so is it, is in it, most other places. But is it mandatory here? No, it's not mandatory. But nevertheless, but how many it, people choose to have well it? Well over 99%. The uptake of newborn screening is exceedingly high because it's a proven public health intervention with very high public trust. And for that reason, I think it's really important that we be as careful as we can about holding and maintaining that trust. And so we also know on a public health level that giving children access to a range of healthy foods, opportunities to exercise, opportunities to be outdoors, good education, is vastly outweighing genomics as a determinant of childhood health, you know, the Thrive by Five campaigns, etc. But that's not to say that genomic information is unimportant. It can be incredibly important. I think, however, we just need to not kind of get too caught up in its elusiveness and its hype, and we use it where it is most useful. And it might end up in a situation in the future where we can draw really great bright lines between a piece of genomic information and the potential for childhood illness that has a really great treatment. But I could probably count those examples on maybe one hand, perhaps two, at this point in time. And when I consider the ethical aspects of interventions like genomic newborn screening, I think we need to consider the technology with all its gnarly difficulties and limitations and we need to factor those limitations into our ethical analysis mm. as well and it is about realizing that data isn't necessarily the same as knowledge for example and it's about realizing that we have really serious inequalities in social determinants of health more broadly in society and actually thinking about people's personal resources to take all of this extra responsibility on for themselves as ah, well. I'm glad you came back to that because remember I asked you, do you think it's reasonable to offer parents' yes. choice at this yes. point? Have you so said yes or no? I, can I kind of tweak my answer <laughs> by saying I actually don't think this is one or the other. To me, I think it's about biochemical screening and then biochemical screening with the add-on. Ah, so, so if I was designing a, this, yeah, I would design you... it differently. But I think at the moment, I think choice 
about whether to have it is absolutely fine. But I was really struck with Lillian Downey's, Dr Downey's presentation earlier today in that those who had greatest decisional regret were the ones who actually chose the more limited form of screening. And I think it is because we live in a society where we are so primed to accept information, we're so primed to do the right thing and to take all forms of testing that actually maybe those families were quite conditioned to feel kind of like, am I doing, because I've said no to something, am I okay? And so I think we need to be uh, really, if we're offering the choice, we need to be absolutely certain that we're offering it as a genuine choice, at least while this information has the inherent limitations that it does. I don't think I agree with Julian that biochemical information or biochemistry is the same as genomics. I think there, sorry, you were saying though, what were you saying? There was Genes no difference. Proteins. Yeah, but at the moment we can't draw the same line between a particular variant and a def definite protein. We just uh, we don't know enough yet to be able to do that reliably. And so, if we had a thought experiment where the technology was great and you could draw a bright line between gene and phenotype, great. Let's do that. Angela, but it looks like Meg's agreeing with you on she that. She is, yeah. and I'm feeling very reassured by that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's because we've both had this experience in the screening context yeah. and we know how important the, the pretest probability is and you know if, if you've got a person standing in front of you that's got a range of clinical features that can be explained by a, a, a pathway in a cell that's not working properly then you can have a lot more confidence that um, the thing that you're observing at the genomic level mm. is is linked to what, what to what's seeing. going on in the yeah. person. Whereas and here, we're in the newborn context. Whereas if you've context. just got a, a, I think, it's I think much more difficult. Medicine's going to have to move away from this old paradigm of just dealing with, as Ainsley put it, knowledge uh, or facts. It's going to have to deal with probabilities and levels of confidence. So it's true, you know, there, there may not be even high confidence of a certain outcome, but we're going to have to learn to deal with that sort of information everywhere, not just with genomics. And, you know, yes, the environment is incredibly important, um, but we shouldn't ignore potentially valuable probabilistic information. We should, you know, evaluate it. But, you know, we're going to live in an age of probabilistic medicine now. And, you know, that the old paradigm of penicillin cures your streptococcal infection or it doesn't, that's all gone. And sticking with single gene disorders, that cystic fibrosis, you know you've got this gene, you're going to get this disorder. That's not the future of medicine. The future of medicine is the sorts of mm. situation that we're all in where we have probabilities of developing diseases. And is it good to provide that information? What do you do with it? How much should we invest in providing people with probabilistic information? And that's the big challenge that this raises, but it's something we're going to have to deal with. Mm. Precision medicine's got to start with your genome at birth. So if you're really, you know, if you're really serious about that, one of the most important contributors to precision medicine is going to be your genome and what's appropriate for you as an individual, yeah. because we are all different. Mm. This and is so, kind of more precision public health, though. Well, no, it, it, it's well. That's I think that's a question <laughs> that you know we'll debate. Um, you know, the public health question, as Ainsley quite correctly points out, is different to the personal question. And at the public health level, we can ask, what is it worth us spending um, in terms of bang for our buck in terms of the, the health outcomes? That's a legitimate public health mm. question. It's quite a different question, what's in people's interests? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and what do they want? Those are quite separate questions, and, yeah. and we don't want to run this together. Mm. Um, from the public health point of view, yeah, it's got to be cost effective. And it may be that you can only interrogate certain amounts of the genome for public health reasons, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable um, 
for, for Precision Health. And, and again, if private providers will come in um, to see that opportunity yeah. to, to provide well, people with it. They have, in fact. Right, there so, are multiple yeah. private yeah. providers that you can access if you wish now. Right. So what I'm seeing might develop then is, to some extent, a, a tension between what parents might want and the state is willing to provide, and that could go either way. Mm. Parents might want more or they might want less. So the, the, the question of where choice fits in. There are almost two different evidence bases, aren't they? There's an evidence base for public health and then there's an evidence base for personal health. Mm. Alrighty, let's move on and think... Shall we move on? Ainsley, are you thinking I'm, I'm about happy that? Let's move on for now. We can come back at the end. Because we're going to come... Yeah, I think we will come back to that, to the evidence-based question. So let me see if I can forward this slide. Yay, it worked. Alrighty, so let's come to the bit that always puzzles me about public health is that in the end it gets to individuals, so it's not just public and population level. So a baby's been born um, at Great Northern, uh, Greater Northern Women's Hospital, uh, two weeks early but healthy, uh, uncom uncomplicated delivery, mum's um, also well. Father hasn't met baby yet because he's a FIFO worker and he's still on his way back from the middle of Western Australia in a mine um, and he's hoping to make it back in time uh, before mother and baby are discharged in the morning. So since discharge is uh, imminent, um, the newborn screening nurse comes along and in line with the pilot program offers to Eloise a choice between... What is she choosing between standard newborn screening or the new test, as he describes it, which is the genomic newborn screening? Um, and he further explains to Eloise if she chooses the genomic newborn screening, then she gets another choice, which is what types of results she wants to get. And they can choose between um, receiving only information about childhood onset conditions. You'll be familiar with this uh, idea if you were here in the morning session and hearing about this in relation to the to the newborn hearing screening. Um, or they can get information about conditions that occur in childhood but are not or regarded as not treatable at the moment. Um, but the, the pilot program is set up so that the parents can't choose to get information about adult onset conditions. So, there's Eloise being offered this choice. Now, panel, let's think about what it's like to be Eloise offering this choice. Um, so, Ainsley, to begin with, do you think she's going to be well-placed to make it? How, how would you know whether mm. Eloise is well-placed to make this choice? What would she need to know? What she should, should she be thinking about? What does she need to understand? Yeah. You would hope that this isn't the first time that Eloise has heard about it. You'd hope that she'd been maybe given some information and had a chance for chatting or thinking at least earlier Yeah, so in there was a too. brochure um, yeah. when she booked in to the hospital and it came in a bag that was about that thick full, full of every of other, stuff. other yeah. brochure and she put it aside to read the week before delivery. But unfortunately, babies come early, yeah, so she hasn't read it yet. So I think, um, you know, what we're looking for in this situation is that Alex sorry, Eloise isn't distressed, that she's um, kind of understands why she's being offered information about these things, in particular for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, because there isn't an intervention available in childhood. You know, it's not going to necessarily, it won't benefit baby Alex, this information, but it might have implications for her. 
But ultimately what we look for overall is that people understand in broad terms why they're being offered this, this test or screening test and that they make a decision that they can live with, that, that is in accordance with their personal values and their, and their hopes and ideas about what parenting is and, and what they're, you know, if they have a partner, what their partner thinks ah. as well. So there's another question for you. Go to you first and then the rest of the panel. Yeah. Um, so her partner's currently on a small plane yeah. and out of contact. Is it enough that one parent consents? Yeah. Well, legally, or... assuming there's no parental agreement in place, yep. you only need one parent to agree. And I, but I think, you know, in well, an ideal world, yeah, in an ideal world, it would be a decision that the parents make together. Yep. And I guess what you might do in this case, seeing as he's already en route, you know, he's kind of six to eight hours away, I guess, is that you would ask whether a decision has to be made right here and right now or whether um, the healthcare team doing this could go away and do see some other people and then come back to Eloise at a later point. Yep. Um, you know, the, the situations, apart from the rapid testing which we heard about earlier today, the situations where a genomic test is an emergency test is quite rare. You know, in a situation like this, this is, this is more a, a convenient situation than the need for this test to be done at this exact moment. Um, Although there are certain forms, certain conditions for newborn where it's better to know as soon as possible because mm. then you can start the intervention. Mm. But I think a matter of hours in the context of a big metropolitan hospital where the sample isn't going to have to travel very far for analysis. So, is Ainsley, okay. you seem to be saying this is a big enough decision that we should preferably wait till both parents. Ideally, are yes. Present. John? Um, if it's absolutely impossible, no, yeah, maybe. I'd, I'd, I agree. And I mean, what I worry about. You know, the birth of a child is a tumultuous experience at the best of times. And I, I worry that um, an individual or a couple would, would necessarily be able to wrap their heads around all the potential issues involved in the smorgasbord of choices that might be on offer if genomic testing was implemented. And so I, I really think rather than just having a brochure in, in a bag, in a um, Easter show bag, um, that there should be a really overt efforts made to sit down with the couple and, and go through mm. the implications of all of this mm. during pregnancy rather than, you know, on day two or three of life right. when everything's going to be all over the shop. And, John, that's on the basis that deciding to have genomic newborn screening is a bigger deal than deciding to have conventional newborn screening? Is that well, why it, it, you're saying that? Yeah, well, it boils down to what are you going to be looking at in, in the data. Um, if you were just going to be looking at the genes that are associated with the disorders that are screened for as part of the current newborn screening, right. you could potentially make an argument for you, that's not that much different to the traditional newborn screening. Mm -hmm. it's, an, it's augmenting it, uh, yep. augmenting the result. If you want to have the capacity to be able to test for hundreds of childhood onset disorders for which there are treatments available, then that's a bigger deal. Let alone going to disorders that might have an onset in childhood that are untreatable, mm. um, but that's, uh, that takes it to yeah. a whole other level. Yeah. And of course, we're not even going near adult onset diseases because yes, we've that's, ruled those out that's a total moment. can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. Quick Angeli, and then what John Nick. has said, um, there is also 
a, a, a range of things we can do to help people clarify their values and, and um, understand their information needs during pregnancy, such as online decision aids, online videos, uh, more interactive resources than just didactic pieces of paper in show bags. So I think we already have a range of those in use in, in other forms of testing in genetics and genomics. And mm. for them, I, you know, I have yet to meet one that hasn't evaluated well with the people who use it. They're generally, ah. you know, there's good principles about how to design them. But I feel like something yep. you're about to say might change that. <laughs> I was just reflecting that uh, from this morning, I was really struck by the comment that very few people use the decision aids. Mm. So, yes, they're well evaluated by those who use them. But if most people don't use a decision aid, it hasn't really yeah. helped you, has it? Um, Julian, so is this, an, is this too much choice? Is there ever too much choice to give parents? Is this too much choice at this point? No, no, I don't think it's too much choice. Uh, <laughs> is there never too much choice? Well, there, there are certain choices which you, you wouldn't, you might not want to have. For example, you might not want to be a compatible, you know, tissue donor for a sibling who has kidney failure, and they, they want you to donate a, a live kidney. You don't, you might not want the, the choice mm, yep. of being a kidney donor in that case. So I, I do think there can be choices that are bad for you, or that you that you really, you know, that you have good reason not to want. But this is not one of those cases. I mean, this is a case between two different sets of diseases. <laughs> and the choice is actually pretty simple. It's, on one hand, there are diseases which you can do something about. On the other hand, there aren't. And you need to give the LOEs the range of those conditions. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy is one, but there will be conditions that are lethal in the next two years or conditions that will maybe lethal in, in, at the age of 15. So they need to understand the options and the possible consequences. But then that's a choice that people should make. And I, I actually think it's patronising to say that you have to wait for Alex to arrive. By all means, um, you know, give Eloise the opportunity for her husband or partner to, to arrive and discuss it together. But, you know, this is a standard medical decision that people are capable of making provided that they're given the right kind of information mm. about the options. Now, you know, what I've seen there is not enough information to make a meaningful choice, but I think, you know, you can convey that to her and she can make a decision or she mm. can choose a deferred decision, um, but that's a decision she should be making. And Ainsley said, in general, a day or two is not going to make a difference. Yeah, it's probably true. I mean, John's more of an expert, but I wouldn't want to be sitting on PKU or, or congenital hypothyroidism or, or any of these conditions that are causing damage to the child the longer you leave them. So there is a reason to, to get on with this now, and, and we only require the consent of one individual. If they're happy to make the decision, I think that's acceptable. So, Ainsley, can I just come back to you on that, uh, and maybe John as well? Um, if Eloise were going to be well informed, what would that look like? Does she need an hour with the newborn screening nurse? Is do you need to sit her in front of the decision aid? Like how much how much time is it going to take? And realistically, how achievable yeah. is it? Do you think? I think here it very much depends on whether you are treating this like a public health intervention or you're treating it like a clinical mm. intervention. And if it's the former. 
what you're basically implying is a group of experts have got together and collectively made a decision that this is in the population's interest to have this test, otherwise we wouldn't be offering it to you. So we are genuinely offering it to you as something that you should strongly consider taking up. Um, and so, so it's not a neutral offer if not you look at it in no. a population health Generally, no. I mean, we, we have breast paradigm. screening for populations with the view that it is a good idea once you reach a certain age to do it, similar with bowel cancer screening, etc. Most population screening is done because we think it improves population health. And so that's it's generally done with the, the impetus of that behind it. And ultimately, you know, is a good use of health system resources. I think, you know, with... With the number of, even with a thousand babies born a year at this hospital, that's a lot of people resources if you're going to sit mm. every single person down and have a very mm. in-depth one-on-one counselling session. That's what I'm thinking, this nurse has got three lots of parents a day. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't think this is necessarily the type of intervention where you are going to sit down and take everybody through a very long counselling session because you have made this decision to offer this to a ostensibly healthy newborn. It's, it's not anything where we need to explain um, anything in the context of the child's own health at this point in time. But so what you're seeking at this stage is general agreement to have this test based on a curated set of conditions with maybe a little bit of choice within that. And if that test detects something, and that is something actually with newborn screening that you're going to have, um, estimates in the literature vary, but I have read some people say around five times as many children are going to be screened positive than on current biochemical screening. For something. That's, that's not surprising because you're looking for more things, so you're going to find more stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but actually, the, the real engagement will come if... Um, Alex screens positive for one of these things and that's when you have a conversation about what to do next. Okay, so you're suggesting that realistically if we're thinking about this as screening, mm. there's not going to be a lot of front-loading Well, we're presenting it as consent. an intervention that we think is a good idea. Yep. We're, we're seeking, we're explaining the principles behind the offer and we're explaining why this is being offered now. You know, newborns are a convenient population, they're in hospital, don't have to make a separate trip, etc. And we're describing in broad terms what the test might detect. And we're saying that it's optional, because it is, mm. but we're also saying that the things it can detect, you know, they've been selected because, for the most part, there's lots of things that you can do about it and it's better to know sooner rather than later. So that might sound quite controversial, but I'm sort of saying, no, no, we don't need serious pre-test counselling for this, but I think it's we've got to get out of that clinical paradigm. Yeah, if we are going to offer this as yep. a public health yep. intervention, we need to be prepared to offer it in that context. Um, um, so and, can I just stop yeah, you there sure. for a moment, Ainsley? Uh, audience, was that controversial? Tell me what you think about this idea that the sort of informed consent you'd get here is not the sort of informed consent you would get when you're testing an individual who's presenting with symptoms mm. and would potentially look quite information light and yeah, counselling light. but it's about light. values clarification and it's about explaining why we're doing it to get people's broad agreement for yep. the actual screening intervention and then you triage people based right. on what you find But you're out. not going to say, this could find these 100 conditions and now I'm going to tell you mm. about each one of them. Well, if I said that to you, would that be helpful? I'd get bored after 55 yeah, and stop exactly. listening to you. I mean, I always joke, I know a lot about newborn screening. I've had two children. I honestly can't remember the conversation about giving my permission. Yeah, I have no idea what I ticked. It wasn't that long, was it? No. Uh, well, yeah, 12 and 10 years ago. But I have no idea what I agreed. So... Alrighty, folks, Eloise is grappling with this and Steve's still in the air 
Um, she appreciates your offer of a few more hours, but it, he, he's not going to get here till then. The uh, best we're going to have is a dodgy mobile phone connection. Okay. So she asked for some advice. So newborn screening noise has gone away, comes back again a couple of hours later. Eloise says, look, I've been thinking about it. All I want to do is the best thing for my baby. So can you help me? What is the best thing for my baby? Well, Julian will say the Rolls Royce. Do the whole genetic yeah. sequence. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of notorious for this view that information is power. Um, so I, I think, you know, my advice would be you definitely should have the test for the treatable conditions because we can intervene earlier and yep. you know protect your baby's health. So that's just so, the, sorry. Is that advising the 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 more limited version of no, the no, no, the genome, the, no, the screening. wider, yeah, the no, at least the the childhood onset treatable conditions yep. you should have. And I think you should also seriously consider having you know the the non-treatable conditions as well, because imagine that you know your baby now has. Sorry? Are we allowed to do that? Oh, no, we the are, for Yeah, Okay. But imagine that, you know, your, your child has a condition that will be lethal in five years. You know, you surely would want to know that. Well, I wouldn't. Well, I mean, if, so if I told you you've got a condition that, you know, you, you could have a condition that will kill you in five years, you don't want to know it. I might, but I'm 60 now, and so I'm contemplating retirement, and I'd retire oh. earlier. What difference would it make so to the baby? You, know, you, you would retire earlier, but there are a lot of things that you can do besides employing medical interventions to, to maximise the time that you have and your child's time. So I was on this panel once with the Nobel laureate, Daniel Kahneman, right? And he said, I said to him at the end of this panel, what, he won the Nobel Prize for framing effects and you know the stuff that's led to nudges and, and high biases and heuristics in psychology. As a psychologist, I said, "What do you think people could do to now that with your knowledge of psychology to improve their well-being?" And he said two things, and one of them is relevant here. He said, "People think of their life as an unending resource, but it's not. It's a fixed resource, and if you have 80 years or 40 years or five years, it's a completely different resource." And in order to use that resource to maximise the good things in it, you have to know how what it is. So actually, this information is fundal, fundamental information mm, about our nature, yep. you know, as an individual, right? And just because the average life expectancy is 82, doesn't mean my life expectancy is going to be 82. And so, you know, you mentioned retirement, but if for adults, family planning, whether to have children or not, when to have children. Whether to become, whether to get married, what sort of career to take, but even for a small child, it's what you do with that child. And of course, people can mess up a resource; they can waste it or they can abuse it. But the challenge is not to remain ignorant of the most basic information about ourselves, and that is what kind of life we're going to have. It's to actually use that information to do more with so, that resource. So, Julian, that sounds like an argument. So that sounds like a suggestion to Eloise that actually it would be better for her baby for her to know yeah, even I, about non-treatable childhood. I think in the long term conditions. it's going to be better for her and her baby. I mean, you know, the obvious way in which it can be better for her is if you don't know your child's going to develop a condition, they start to develop that condition, you're running around trying to get a diagnosis and perhaps you have you know, an adverse event from a, from a particular uh, intervention that wasn't appropriate for the diagnosis. So you can cut all that short, so you can expedite medical care. Um, but, but apart from the medical angle, there are just, there, there are ways in which, you know, you need to accommodate reality 
and not live in the fantasy of somebody else's child's life or, or somebody else's life and, and, and learn to, to live it. And a lot of people, when they've had cancer, say, you know, that it increased the value of their life because they had a period to plan for and it made them live. And, and so, I, you know, although I wouldn't say it should be mandatory, <laughs> I, I think actually it should be mandatory to have testing for treatable conditions, but I don't think it should be mandatory to have, you know, testing for, for non-treatable conditions, but I think it should be more openly embraced, whereas the standard, standard view of all newborn screening, as, as John correctly said, Wilson Junger, you've got to have an intervention. Uh, now, from a public health point of view, uh -huh. if your yep. only goal is, is health, that's true. Mm. But my goal is not health. My goal is well-being. And from a well-being point of view, actually, that information can be very valuable. Ainsley. Oh, my goodness. Um, OK. <laughs> Deep breath. So um, I think a couple of things going on here. If, if Eloise said, I want to do the best, I think one thing to ask Eloise is why, does, why is she framing the question in that way? What is it that she is seeking? So you would, if it was me, I would kind of say, well, you know, what, what kind of parent do you want to be? What kind of childhood do you want um, Alex to have? And how do you see this information fitting into that? Do you think it will benefit you? Um, what else do we need for you to be a flourishing parent, for example? Um, uh, remember, she's concerned about Alex, not herself. Yeah, so, well, so She doesn't I think, want to be a flourishing parent. What she do you, wants what a do flourishing child. What do you think Alex child. needs to flourish, then, I think you could ask. But, you know, what I'm pushing at here is a kind of more critical interpretation of why we're even asking, why she's even asking what what can I do that is the best for Alex? And I think she's doing that because we socially condition parents to be the best possible parents. And that can be really hard for some people if they're living in a low resource setting. So, you know, I would be making sure that Eloise has what she needs to make a good decision that she feels she can live with for Alex and his health. And that might be to receive maximal information or it might be to say, do you know what, that's not a priority for me and there are other things that I'm going to focus on. What I'm mindful of is us kind of pushing all of that onto parents, responsibilising mm. them in the context of a really complex time of life for parents anyway. Um, I think, you know, ultimately what we're driving at here is we want to provide information that's going to benefit population health, but also information that people feel they can live with and that they've made a good decision in receiving. And we're doing that in a world that is, that where genomics is currently far from perfect, but is pretty great, but we're also doing it where there are just really basic challenges that people have that genomics is not going to solve. And so I think for me it's about trying to get away a little bit from just seeing genomics on its own and trying to consider this information in context with everything else. Um, so it sounds like you'd be turning Eloise's question back to her. I would be trying saying, to support her rather you than think telling. It's best? Mm not saying this is best. That's probably what I would do, yeah. yeah. If I were Eloise, I might be slightly annoyed with you at that <laughs> point because I asked you a question and you haven't answered it. I wonder if John or Meg would like to comment. Um, I, I think to... Um, I'm not dis disagreeing with Ainsley and to come back to a point that um, Julian made relating to in the longer term this information would be potentially of great value to the child and the family, in other words, relating to an untreatable disorder. I, I, I agree with you on that front, but what I'm not sure about is that telling a family in the newborn period about this would be the ah. appropriate time to be doing that. And so, again, potentially a staged approach, mm. dealing with the you know, acute stuff that where something can be done 
in the newborn period when people are m you know, more or less used to having to make those kind of decisions versus coming back you know, when Stephen's in the room, when they're away from the newborn period, things have settled down, and then asking them the question, well, these are the other options that we can now offer you. Are you interested or not? Mm. Um, and, and then have that dialogue. Also, mm. quite soon after that. Yeah, not 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 in not the years not, later. not years later, but <laughs> certainly not in the days yeah. after birth. Yeah. So, can I tell you what happened and get your reaction to it? Can I just make one quick comment that I meant to make before? We've mentioned Wilson and Younger a lot today, and actually, I think the genetics world has moved on from Wilson and Younger. Better tell the audience um, what Wilson and Younger. So, there are a set of principles that uh, are developed. Is, was yeah for the World Health Organization. Their principles: population screening. I think it was 1968, but I might be wrong. Um, and it is very condition focused. So it's about it being an important health problem, there's a, it's a serious condition, um, there's an intervention, it, the test that you use finds everything it needs to find without finding too much, it doesn't need to find, etc, etc. But where genomics, and particularly multi-conditioned genomic testing, departs from that is you're not looking for a single thing, you're looking for a lot at once. And so the principles are a poor fit, but in about 2008, I think, another group came in and actually re redeployed these principles to better suit genetics. And so I just wanted to clarify that uh, in case someone like Nigel Lang is watching this and going apoplectic at the camera, um, that actually... No it's sign of it in the <laughs> Nigel is <laughs> Nigel is one of the leads of the Reproductive Genetic Carrier Screening Project and is not... Uh, doesn't believe that Wilson Younger is suitable. But ultimately, you know, there are way... There's lots of people, smart people, doing really good thinking about how these... how we could take principles of population screening and make them work in a genomic context. Yeah. Just important okay. thanks, Ainsley. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> this is what happened. Didn't turn out well. Well, this is a question. Did it turn out well or did it turn out badly? So Eloise decides on uh, the genomic screening and to get all of the findings on the basis that I should find out everything about my baby because that might be best for my baby. Um, they go home a few weeks later, they get a call saying that the lab has found two uh, variants in, how do you say that thing? Hex B. Thank you, Hex B, which causes Sandhoff disease. I might ask someone about that in a moment. So that's an untreatable condition. It's autosomal recessive um, and usually leads to death in early childhood. They're completely devastated. Steve in particular is furious because uh, he says he didn't know that they could learn about those kinds of results. This is totally not what he's thinking. Their relationship starts to fall apart uh, and things are looking really grim for the family and leaves Steve's thinking about taking legal action on the basis that they didn't give an informed consent, folks. Um, setting aside the legal action, What's your reaction? Have they been so? So have they been made worse off, and was this avoidable? I think it depends when you ask them. Obviously, this is the aftermath of some really bad news, and I would hope, obviously, that the genetic counsellor is very quickly setting about making an appointment to see the family and referring on to other relevant clinical services and, you know, thinking about palliative care and, and what else might be needed for this family. So in the immediate aftermath, you can obviously understand that this family feels quite surprised, upset, shocked at this information. You know, we know that people have testing because they want reassurance about health. You know, the, mm. 
understanding that a test can also find things that might not reassure you about health is harder to wrap your head around. And so, you know, we'd be looking here for support for this family that goes more than just at this point in time. And, you know, what this information will provide this family, which is possibly where you're driving at as well, is it might inform future reproductive decision making and they might then choose an intervention in a subsequent pregnancy if it is possible to um, choose to have a child without this condition because what it has incidentally done is identified assuming that they're both the genetic parents yep. of yes. um, Alex, that they're both carriers of this condition, assuming it wasn't right. um, a new variant in Alex okay. as well. So apart from finding out about this child, they have also found out their own carrier status, presumably, mm. which tells them about risk for the future in a, in a future pregnancy. So I asked, have they been made worse off? And I gave you a whole lot of lovely information that didn't answer that no, question. No, well, kind of partly answered, because one of the things you said was, depends when you ask the question. Mm. And it depends whether you're thinking how they feel or objectively looking on from the outside. John, did you want to comment? Yeah, I think right, right now they're worse off because their, their whole world has been turned upside down. But if you come back and and meet with the family in the subsequent weeks when they've had time to digest this, obtain more information and so on, their headspace might be in a completely different place. And so, mm. um, you know, the, the legal action may be off the table, right. um, but certainly, you know, the family will be better informed and will, will then be in a position mm. to implement what potential supportive treatments might be available in the short to medium term for the child. Yeah. And of course, as Ainsley said, this opens up another can of worms relating to their reproductive risks and and also the opportunity for reproductive um, restoring reproductive confidence, having um, given them that information. Yes, I guess once they understand this is an inherited condition, they're now worried about what's going to happen next. But you do have a way of saying there's something you can do. Julian? Um, well, there's many things to say. Um, so, I mean, this reaction is, is understandable. Um, you know, I, I think whether he has a legitimate ethical or legal complaint will be determined by what he was actually told. So I, I disagree with Ainsley about her comments about the choice between treatable and non-treatable conditions being a public health intervention, because I agree that we don't need to provide that much information for conditions, you know, testing for, for cystic fibrosis or for for, um, for hyperthyroidism or PKU. But I think what they were presented with was a novel choice um, that is controversial. And although I'm a great supporter of offering that choice to people, um, I think that they do need to understand what's on the table. And on the little snippet before it said, conditions like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which can be highly variable, in terms of its expression and severity. Um, and I didn't see mention of conditions lethal early in childhood, yep. which is actually what they've got mm. on the table. So mm. I think um, that's a reason why they, they needed to be informed of the range, the spectrum mm. of conditions that, that might be picked up if they're really to be making a meaningful choice. And so I think that there is, a, there is a question here whether they were able to make a meaningful choice or not that needs to be addressed. Um, Do you think they've been made worse off? Um, they, they have... I mean, going back to my point about probability, I mean, you know, we live in a probabilistic world and, and by, by getting this information about non-treatable conditions doesn't mean that your life or your baby's life is actually going to go better. It could go much worse.
Um, and that's why I argued you need support to make it better. Um, so it's at this point, they have clearly been made worse. They're, you know, extremely distressed and, and, and suffering a lot. Um, and and it could, that could continue. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that this is a sort of romantic journey, but, I'm, but what I am saying is probably the best course is going to be one where you learn to live with the hand that you've been dealt and to make the most of that. Mm. That's, that's my belief. Mm. And I think at this point we need to support them to, to make the best of that. Sorry, Mick. This is just sliding doors scenario here where they choose the opposite way and then they find out very close to, you know, this child uh, only having a short time with this child before death in early childhood yep. and, and, and going back and that. having decision regret the other way and yes. saying, I wish I'd been counselled more um, directively to, to, to choose the other way. Yeah. So, because things um, could have turned out better if we'd known earlier. Yeah. So decision regret's possible. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think yeah. equal, equal devastation is, is potential outcome as yeah. well. Do you think we're there yet? Are we ready? Are we ready now to start doing this, or what do we need him to put in place to start doing this at a population level? So one of the things that you've just said is, in order to do it at a population level, we need to think about the population context. Mm. Um, other thoughts? Are we ready now, John? Would you like to see it start next year? Well, I'm, I'm a great fan of it, but but um, I think there there are a number of things. Um, firstly, um, as Ainsley said, we need to have an understanding of what the Australian public thinks might or might not be appropriate. So we, we haven't had that dialogue in great detail, although it's underway. Um, the, the second thing is I'm really conscious that we don't, in, in implementing something, don't undermine the public trust for the existing newborn screening program, which right. is and remains extremely successful. Um, I think that it's really interesting that the federal government opened up a grant round just in the last few months focusing on exploring genomic um, sequencing in the newborn and we'll hear the outcome of those applications in the next few months and it'll be really interesting to see which ones are chosen to be progressed. Um, so I don't think we're there yet but I think um, there's really great opportunities and if we do this carefully I, I think um, it'll be a great outcome. Right. Okay. So we're on the way, John. We're on the way. I'll just, so, I, mean, I never usually disagree with John, but I, I, think, um, I just want to qualify one thing. I think this is an opportunity for leadership, not, not following. So I think it is important to, to understand what the Australian public want, but it's also an important opportunity to educate and lead people to a better future. Um, and, and I wouldn't want to see this get bogged down as, you know, I think the, I can say it now, <laughs> the mitochondrial um, bill got bogged down um, with, you know, endless consultations. And, 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 and during that time, you know, babies are dying and suffering while we're waiting to, to introduce this. I think, you know, this is, this is good. You know, it's the future. We need to embrace it and we need to bring people on board and, and I think it's the opportunity for leadership, not, not dithering. Mm. I've, I've published a paper about this, so if anyone's interested, they can look that up and see what I have to say. But I think, for me, my bottom line would be let's be driven by the end that this testing can serve, not the technology itself. So let's work out how we can use this well to complement a proven public health initiative and use where, find out where the gaps are, find out what this can do that existing things can't and deploy it succinctly and well in those mm. contexts. Mm. 
very nicely said and very succinctly said, Ainsley. And Meg, you've got the last word then. Do you want the last word? I'm happy to have the last word. Um, I, I think we are ready to learn more about this and explore the enormous potential of it. I think we're at a stage where we have learnt a lot about the potential of these technologies to do public good and I think we have a kind of framework and a critical mass of expertise and um, community and ways to have these conversations which means that we're poised at a really exciting time where we can take it forward. Yep. And can we just take some notes of caution with us about Absolutely. doing it well? Do it well, do yeah. it do it carefully. Yeah. Um, yeah. All righty, terrific. Thank you, everyone. That was Professor Lynn Gillam leading a panel discussion on the ethics of genomic newborn screening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your colleagues and give us a rating on your podcast app. This panel recording was made in the studios of Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. The Ethics of Paediatric Genomics Symposium was produced by Dr Dania Veers and Fiona Lynch. If you would like to learn more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, look us up on rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Thank you.